Um, So this evening we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Um, So you can follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to borrow the one from the back of the pew in front of you. We also have some in the lobby you can have as our gift to you. So once again, we're reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, friends. Um, It's good to be with you. As you uh, prepare for your move, uh, I probably will be seeing you less as I have my morning service. And so, um, yeah, I guess that's not a bad thing on your end, right? But um, I'm a little sick, so I'm a little medicated. But rest assured, Pastor Steve, I will not say or do anything inappropriate. <laughs> Sometimes I can, and you, you've been very gracious to me. But <clears throat> Okay, so this passage is actually a very difficult passage. It, it really is a difficult passage, and we'll parse out why. But it's this basic idea of your calling as a Christian. Now, some of you here may not actually consider yourself believers, uh, but... I hope that this message would still be just at least instructive in terms of what Christians are supposed to be like, right? And the basic idea today is that we're called to be salt and light. And so let's first contextualize this. So before we look at this passage, look at what Jesus says right before. So let me read this on our behalf. Blessed are you, verses 11 and 12, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this passage that we just read is coming from this context of if you're a Christian, if you really count yourself a Christian, a big part of your life will be actually persecution and suffering. Okay, so already here, this idea of persecution and suffering for the gospel are actually foreign to most of us. It is. Like, when is the last time you have, like, uh, suffered, really, on account of the gospel? It's just something to think through. So let me begin to set the stage in this way, and I hope then our passage makes sense. I attended a super-duper liberal university for college, and it was really God's blessing in my life because I grew up in a, like, Christian bubble, and so having the chance to go to a, like a very progressive liberal university was actually very good for me. Um, when I was growing up, I was surrounded by Christians, right? And so you might say it was a safe place. Uh, there was this one class, it was um, on entrepreneurship. There were about 25 of us in a classroom. And so before we began, we were all in a circle, and the professor had us go around and share what is the most important thing to you, Right? And so people gave different answers, and I being incredibly naive, just um, and a lot of it was just innocent, when it was my turn, I said, oh yeah, Jesus is the most important thing to me. 
And it was actually my first experience where everyone was like, oh, <laughs> Jesus freak, right? And that experience was very instructive for me because it was the first time I realized, oh, you know, to identify with Jesus does mean some degree of, like, social rejection. And what's interesting for me now is that I'm a professor and I'm a pastor. And just in terms of a social experiment, when I meet people, you know, especially in this area, one of the first questions that they ask you is what? Like, what do you do? So interestingly, when I say I'm a professor, people are very interested in that. They're like, oh, what do you teach? So I don't say Bible. I say religious studies. They're like, oh. And they're much more receptive. But when I meet someone and they say, like, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. They're like, oh. Right? And then the conversation ends. And you see, this passage that we just read, You Are Salt and Light, it actually doesn't make sense unless you first grasp that if you genuinely want to follow Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, then you will actually to some degree experience uh, persecution. And recently, a, a young woman, she's single, she's in her mid-20s, she was sharing with me something like very interesting. Uh, she was saying that for her, she, she's a very committed Christian. And um, part of being a very committed Christian is that she wants to, uh, you might say, wait for um, sexual intimacy until she's married. And she was, so she lives in this area, and she was sharing something interesting. She said, but you know what I'm realizing more and more as I try to live out the biblical ethic on sexuality, right? She said both Christians and non-Christians keep calling me, like, puritanical, prudish, right? Just you haven't, like, let go and progressed. And so, again, I want to underscore that this passage that we just read, you are salt and light, it actually won't make sense to you unless you first understand what Jesus said in the verses before, namely that if you want to follow me, you're going to experience some degree of, like, persecution is a word that's foreign to us, but rejection, suffering right? Because why are we starting there? This is why. If you begin to understand, hey, you know, amongst my friends, like for instance, uh, I was reading actually something really interesting by a same-sex attraction person, and he said, he, by the way, is not a Christian, but he said something interesting. He said, you know, like, one thing is the Bible is actually pretty clear in terms of its view on, like, same-sex and homosexuality and so forth. But I just want you to imagine something with me for a moment. Let's say uh, you're at work, and afterwards, you have, like, a happy hour with your colleagues. And, you know, as you're all just hanging out and something, somehow the question comes up of, like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? And let's say you have, like, a men's dinner or a women's breakfast. And you say, well, you know, my church has something. And so your colleagues at work are like, oh, oh so you're a Christian? And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And they're like, oh, that's great. And then in, almost inevitably, let's say the question arises, so what's your view on human sexuality? What's your view on gender fluidity? I, I can pretty much guarantee if you give the, you might say, the more orthodox view, it's not going to go over too well. It's not. So that's just that's the reality that we live in, right? And so, you see, in this context, very naturally, very naturally, you're going to have one of two responses. So this is what uh, like has been true throughout uh, church history. One response is this. Because you don't want to suffer ridicule. You don't want people to say, oh, you're a Jesus freak, or you're narrow-minded, 
You're not progressive. You see, one way that Christians tend to respond is that they tend to separate from like broader society. And they form like these, uh, you might say, Christian enclaves, right? So like what happens is you just check into work, you do your work, and then you otherwise your social life and most of your like relational life comprises just believers, you see? And so there's that one tendency because you don't want to be, you might say, the minority. Because you don't want to suffer social outcasts, you separate from society. So that's one, one tendency. And some of you want to ask, is that your tendency? Others, however, what we do is, instead of separating, we assimilate. Does that make sense? Instead of uh, highlighting our distinctive calling and identity as Christians, what we do is we just assimilate to the world around us. So in that com- same conversation, you might say something like, yeah, I know like, that's what Christians believe, but you know, I, I don't believe that. No, I, I, you know, I think that's outmoded. I think that's you know, just narrow-minded and so forth. And so what happens, or the young woman I was telling you about, when she was said, you know, your views on sexuality, they're a little puritanical, they're a little prudish, right? I mean, I mean like what's wrong with trying to figure out if you're sexually compatible before you get married? So because you don't want to separate, but neither do you want to be marginalized, what you do is you assimilate. And you're like, oh, okay. Who wants to be the 40-year-old virgin? You see? So historically, Christians will do one of two things. Again, they will separate and just form Christian enclaves, or they will assimilate and cease to be distinct altogether. What Jesus calls us to do is actually very different. He calls us to be present and yet distinct. You see that? And that's why... What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, you are salt and you are light. So in other words, salt, for it to have any, any use, it has to be fully present, let's say, on the like, like cut of steak, right? A big cut of steak, it has to actually be immersed in it. For light to have any meaning, it has to shine in darkness. And so the biblical call, right, is not either or. It's not separate. It's not assimilate, but it's what? Integrate while maintaining your unique identity. And that's hard. See, the other two options, very easy to do. But the call to stay put and to stay put in order to bring life, that's very, very difficult. Um, I felt it was, uh, it was very um, almost providential for your pastor to ask me to speak about this passage because um, one of the actually really exciting things for, for me relative to doxology is to see how much you've like grown numerically spiritually over these few years right and it just reminds me of the early years of my church so as many of you know just from what i've shared about my churches our church this is you might say you you might you might laugh at this but this is our struggle our struggle is we are almost a hundred percent introverts like extreme introverts. And so, not to make light of this, but COVID was a delightful season for many of our members. Like, living in isolation, gardening, just doing their own thing, right? And so, for them, it was fine. And for our church, right, we would be very, very content. And I'm not exaggerating this. If we stayed at 50, 60, 70 people, we have like no aspirations to become big and blah, 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 right? And so we were at an interesting crossroad. 
we, we kept moving one school after another, after another, because we kept increasing in size. And finally, we were at a crossroad where we were like, we had this opportunity to buy a building in Tyson's Corner. And we actually did not want to. We really did not want to. We're like, all right, let's just stay small. Let's stay simple. Let's remain unknown. So one of the models at our church is like, quiet ministry, do some good, die, be with Jesus. That is like, like our vision. It's, you know, and strange, it's not very, I don't think it's very in- inspiring, but people are drawn to it. So it's a mystery to me. But when we decided to buy the building, it was actually for one reason. And I'm, I'm being entirely truthful here. Because, let me encourage you this way. If you ever consider buying a building, those of you who own a home, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's actually easier to rent a home. Because owning a home is like having another child. It's, it's a pain. So owning a commercial building is no good. Let me just, that's all I want to say, it's no good. But the reason why we bought it is we had this one conviction. See, on the one hand, we're introverts. So our tendency is not to assimilate. Our tendency as a church is to separate. We would just be fine living in our little bubble and, you know, just living as is. Except Jesus. See, that's the problem. Well, not problem, but you know what I mean. (laughs) It's just the challenge. Because as much as we want to be super-duper quiet and unknown and under the radar, Jesus, he says, you are neither to assimilate nor separate. You are to stay put and do good so that by your good works, people would give glory to the Father. And so we decided against, you might say, our personality, our sensibilities, to, to buy a building in Tyson's Corner, because Tyson's Corner is a very, like, it's a growing and happening area. And our goal has been to make it into a community center, and by the grace of God, that's literally what's going to be happening in the next 6 to 12 months, right? And um, if it were not for this passage, where Jesus says very explicitly, you are my people, you are neither to separate and live in spiritual comfort, nor are you to assimilate. You have to go where the people are, the people that don't know the gospel. You have to go there and be salt and light. And friends, I just want to encourage you. I, you know, I don't really know doxology, personality. I mean, to be honest, you, you all seem, um, you seem like a pretty cool church. And I know that because I'm not cool. So you can, like, you, can, you know your opposite very well. And so, like, you know, you're hip and all of that. But I do want to encourage you to know what your tendencies are. Maybe your tendency might be to separate and create like a kind of like a bubble. Maybe your tendency might be to assimilate by not addressing hard topics, right? Like abortion, like gender fluidity. And you see, those are hard topics, right? But the Bible, Jesus says it's not either or. You are called to assimilate, be part of a society so that you might be salt and light. So that's number one. Number two, Jesus says explicitly why. Notice in verse 16, he says the following. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is heaven, who is in heaven. This is what Jesus is getting at. And this would be an amazing vision for you to have as a church. So in reality... The longer you do life, the longer you do ministry, the majority of the world will not like 
what the gospel has to say. And we could do lecture after lecture as to why. In other words, you see, as much as the gospel is good news, it's not inherently attractive news. And among other reasons, this is why. So a lot of us, especially in this DMV area, we place tremendous weight on our resume, right? Like our accomplishments. But think about the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel is basically saying what you do or what you don't do really has no value in the eyes of God. The only way God will save you is if you toss out your resume and if you trust in Jesus' resume. Can I tell you, that doesn't go over well with many people in the DMV area because they view themselves as what? Like, you know, their identity is built on their resumes. Or think about the following. One of the main messages of the gospel is that Jesus is the Lord. You, in other words, are not the captain of your own ship, right? The Bible doesn't allow for autonomy. So, again, we have to highlight that from the very beginning. There is nothing about the gospel message that is naturally attractive to the world around us. I mean, there's so many reasons for that. And so then why, why does Jesus underscore the necessity of good works? And I think this is why. You see, wouldn't it be an amazing thing if as doxology over the next five, ten years, as you abounded in good in this area, more and more organizations and people actually came to you, especially to your leaders, and they said the following. We don't believe what you all believe. We, we think that what you all believe is narrow-minded, outdated, and all of the above. So we don't really believe what you believe. But, 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 because of all the good that you do, we are so glad that you are here in this area. See, that's what Jesus is getting at where he says sometimes, more often than not, words will not work. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't preach the gospel. But there's something about good works that has a way of attracting people and softening people's hearts, right? I was reminded of this recently. So was it two Saturdays ago? Yeah, I think it was two Saturdays ago. Uh, It was like Valentine's Day weekend. And um, there's this couple at our church they're just like, they're the sweetest people in the world. They really are. So the week before Let Valentine's Day, they, they reached out to me and they said, hey, Pastor Walt, um, you know, at our church, we have a bunch of singles, right? And um, I don't think they're doing anything for Valentine's Day. And I was like, okay. And they said, can we borrow your house? And I was like, yeah, sure, what for? They said, we want to throw this epic dinner for all the singles, right? And I was like, huh, okay, <laughs> interesting. And so I said, what do you need me to do? They're like, just let us borrow your house. And I said, all right. And so Saturday morning, they came at 10. It's just uh, four of them, uh, like the deacon couple and then his buddy and uh, his wife. And basically, they moved all the furniture in our house. They brought in these curtains and they literally transformed my house to make it look like a French restaurant. It was like, it was, it was mind-boggling. And uh, they set up this huge banqueting table that actually like reminded me of that scene from like Harry Potter when they're having like a feast, right? Um, they set up a bar. They set up like all these hors d'oeuvres. And so from 10 to 6, they transformed the house to make it look like, you know, a restaurant. And I remember when like about 20 singles came in, they were like, oh my gosh, 
Pastor Paul, is this your house? I'm like, yeah. I can't even recognize it either. It's like the strangest thing. And all week, actually, this couple had been preparing food. So initially, when they said that they were going to have a dinner at my house, I just thought it was going to be, like, honestly, wings and pizza. But it was, like, bass. Uh, it was, uh, like, a steak. And it was really outrageous. And they were, like, servers. And the, the funniest part of the evening was that there was, like, live entertainment. And, like, the deacon had his friend, like, perform um, everything I do, I do it for you. Right? And it was just hilarious. The entire night was hilarious. It was over the top. Everyone was laughing. And we had this new single. I haven't ever seen him before. So that's why when he stepped into the house, I was a little unfriendly. I said, hey, I don't recognize you. (laughs) So anyway, like he came in. He goes, no, I've been coming out for two weeks. And um, as he was just experiencing the night, he said something actually really interesting. He said, "Uh, hey, Pastor Paul, like, why are you guys doing this for all the singles? And he kept saying, like, why are you doing this for, like, like this is, like, over-the-top production. And, um, you know, I said to him, first of all, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's the one. But second is they just wanted to do it. They just they wanted to love on them. They wanted to make sure that they didn't spend Valentine's Day alone. And they just wanted to make sure that they felt loved. And his response was interesting. He was like, huh, huh, huh. He was like, I haven't seen that before. Like, that's interesting, right? You see, the thing about Christian good works is that it's not based on performance. There isn't a prior cause. Christian good works, right, are all based on grace where there are no strings attached and it's over the top. And it leaves people feeling like, what was that about? You see, because... When you do that again and again and again, eventually what could happen and what often happens in many contexts is then people begin to ask, hey, what's this all about? And you see, friends, the reason why Jesus says you have to abound so much in good works is because people eventually, they ask questions and they're like, tell me about this kingdom that you are a part of. Tell me about this king. And so this is why, friends, like, I, I want to encourage you The biblical message is so clear. God does not save us because of our good works. Let me say that again and again. God does not save you because of good works. But good works really, really, really matter because they show that you're saved, because they show that you're part of the king, and because they show you're part of the kingdom. You see? like There's something about good works where it has a way of softening people's hearts and stirring their curiosities because you are marching to a different drummer. This is why, number two, as you continue to grow as a church, right, again, neither separate nor assimilate, but integrate. And when Jesus says integrate, he says become a force of so much good that, again, this is the response that people have to you. I don't really agree with your gospel, but I love what it seems to be doing. Which leads to our last point. How how do you accomplish this? How do you accomplish this? And you're not going to like this. Okay? You're not going to like this. But you see, when you hear Jesus says, okay, this is how you got to do it. You got you to be salt and you got to be light. And because we've heard that language so much before, like, yeah, like, yeah, 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 sure, sure, salt and light. This is what Jesus is basically saying. If 
you want to assimilate and you want to do good, it requires one thing. And this is the one thing. Have you ever um, seasoned a piece of meat? So let's say, like yesterday, we had a bunch of our deacons over. And so we had sizzling steak. And we dropped some kosher uh, salt on it. Have you ever done anything like that? What happens to the salt? It doesn't stay there. What happens? It disintegrates, right? It, like, disappears. Or when Jesus says here, let your light shine in darkness, right? The contemporary example of that would be, let's say we lost all electricity. So you're using the light on your, like, uh, iPhone. What happens eventually is the battery starts to what? Die. In this original context, undoubtedly it was candles. But candles have to be lit by oil. And guess what? There isn't an endless supply, right? Instead, eventually the candle would die. Jesus says something really interesting here. He says, the only way you, as my people, can be salt and light is this. You have to be willing to die so that others might live. And again, like, you see, you have to understand when Jesus began his ministry, he was really popular. You, you, you always remember why he was popular? He was popular because no one understood what he was saying. Jesus was really popular in the beginning because people misunderstood him. Like, just, like, very quickly, if you narrate his life, what was his first miracle, remember? Like, he turned water into wine. And not only did he turn water into wine, there's so much. And not only was it so much, it was, like, so awesome. So imagine, like, you have a newcomer at your church, and he throws a huge party, and he literally orders the best wine, like, an endless supply. I'm pretty sure he would become popular. And then second thing Jesus does is he starts to heal people, and that is awesome. Any, any disease, any cancer, any ailment you have, boom, he does it. You're healed. And it's free. So you're like, oh, like, not bad. And then the third thing that he does is this. See, during this time, you have to understand, people were generally hungry. There was never, like, too much food. And what does Jesus do? He says, you know what? I know there are 5,000 men here plus women and children, so that was probably 10,000, 15,000 people. He goes, don't worry, I got it. Imagine, like, having that kind of member who says, don't worry, guys, every week after uh, church, I got dinner, endless supply, so much that you can take home, right? So Jesus, he comes on the scene. He provides the most fantastic wine. He provides, like, uh, medical services. He provides food. Everyone loves him. And he's a good preacher, too. Okay, so he's like the package, right? So you have Jesus. Initially, people don't know what he's about. And they're like, we want him to be the king. We love him. He's the best thing that ever happened. But then Jesus begins to clarify, wait, 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 wait. Do you want to really follow me? Like, you really want to be part of my kingdom? And so initially, you're like, yes, this is, like, awesome. Jesus says, okay, if you want to be part of what I'm all about, you have to die. You have to die because this is the way of the kingdom. In order for others to live, you have to be willing to die. And that's why when people began to put the two together, do you remember what Jesus said? If anyone would come after me, he must what? Take up his cross and follow me. And that's why Jesus begins super-duper popular, crowds of thousands, And then finally, when Jesus died on the cross, we think there were about three to ten people. You see, friends, when Jesus says here, you are called to be salt and light, what he's basically saying is, in order for you to be a source of light and hope and blessing, right, you have to be willing to die. 
In some cases, it's literal, but for most of us, it means to die to your preferences, your personalities, even your privileges, so that by becoming poor, others might become rich. And that's why, like, you know, as you listen to this message, you are salt, you are light. What Jesus was saying is, like, in other words, the salt must disintegrate. The light, the oil must be all used up so that by your disintegration, society might be integrated so that as your light begins to die, others might be able to see it for the first time. And so this is why it begs the question, who would want to do this? Like, this sounds like hard stuff, you know? And, you know, I've told you enough about my kids. Um, And that's why, like, very rightly so, when I ask my boys, even recently, do you guys want to be pastors? They always say, you know, unilaterally, they're like, oh, heck no. (laughs) They're like, that looks like hard work. And um, when I'm about to ask my daughter, do you want to, like, you know, would you ever be open to marrying a pastor? My wife just looks at me, and then I stop talking, you know, because <laughs> she's like, no, who in her right mind would want to marry a pastor, right? And um, you see, so that makes sense. And this is why, friends, if you're sitting here, you're like, uh, <laughs> no, thank you. I actually want to encourage you. You're in a good place. You see, it's one thing for you to be able to say, yes, I want to be salt and light without having any idea what, like, Jesus is actually saying. So the next time you season meat, or the next time your, like, smartphone is running out of battery, you have to see that's what Jesus is talking about. As you see the salt disintegrating and disappearing, as you see the battery dying, you know, you should reconsider that. You're like, oh, actually, I'm not sure I want that. So in a strange way, if you're sitting here and you're like, oh, that's definitely not what I signed up for. That's not what I want. I want to encourage you, you're actually in a very good place. And why am I saying you're in a good place? Because at least you understand what Jesus is saying. You understand what he is demanding. And so instead of saying yes to something you don't understand, you're saying no to what you do understand. And we could end the sermon in that way, right? Except, this is one last point, this idea of salt disintegrating, light losing its light, in short, this paradigm of dying so that others might live, how can that not point us to Jesus, who was the true salt and who is the true light? You see, friends, when we look at Jesus, right, he was the one who was salt. He literally, spiritually and physically, was disintegrated so that you and I could be reintegrated into the image of God. He was the light. When he was hanging on the cross, his light began to flicker. Literally, you saw his life being sucked out of him so that by the loss of light and life, we, in turn, might have life eternal. And this is why the good news of the gospel is not simply, hey, this is what you need to do. Go do it or don't. Yeah. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus is the first and foremost salt and light. This is what he has done for you. And friends, the reason why you have to focus first and foremost on that is to the degree that you see this is what Jesus has done for you and this is what he has done for you and me, then and only then can we begin to be like, 
Huh. Hmm. Okay. Maybe I can, and maybe I should be salt and light. See, that's why the good news is first and foremost for you, and only when it begins to sink in do you begin to see, and this is now what we must be for others. And so this is why my hope for you as a church is that, yes, you would be salt and light, but you'd be very sober about what Jesus means. But more than that, you would understand that Jesus was salt and light for us. And I want to encourage you and conclude in this way. The more you understand the beauty of the gospel, the more you understand that literally Jesus, like this idea of like he was disintegrated, he was broken, his life was snuffed out of him so that you and me, so that we could be reintegrated, so that we might be filled with life. I promise you that that gospel is what will change you. And it's that gospel that will make you a church that is full of salt and light. And in this way, you point back to the true salt and light. Okay? Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this church. Um, Thank you for the wonderful deacons, elders who have been serving so faithfully. And thank you for the ways that this church is undoubtedly growing. And they're about to do a very significant move. And so I pray that this passage would really sink in for this church. Salt and light, salt and light. So we can't separate, we can't assimilate, but we have to integrate. We have to integrate in a way that our good works are so commendable, so distinct that people give glory to God. But this is really hard. Because to be salt and to be light means to accept the cost of dying so that by dying, others might live. Honestly, who can do this left to himself? Who can do it? No one. And yet, we thank you that this is what Jesus has done for us. And I pray that this church would be a church that is centered and rooted in the gospel, that they would see that Jesus was the first salt. He was the first light. By his disintegration, by his death, we now have been made whole. And I pray that as this gospel continues to take hold of this church, that they, out of a transformed heart, would desire to be the same, salt and light in this world, so that this world would know the Father and give him glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.